Baptism is a foundational practice and is considered a sacrament in most Christian churches. This ancient practice has been significant since Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. Churches today have divergent theologies and ways of baptizing people. But in today's interview, Sarah Barton shares what can be learned about baptism across these theological and practical differences by learning from people with intellectual disabilities. Her recent book is Becoming the Baptized Body, Disability and the Practice of Christian Community. Barton is a theologian with dual appointments at Duke Divinity School and the Duke University School of Medicine in the Occupational Therapy Doctorate Division. She serves as both a pediatric occupational therapist and a theologian. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Sarah, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for inviting me, Sherry. I'm really happy to be here. So let's let's dive right in. Today we're going to be talking about baptism and ability and disability. So could you get us started by sharing what sparked your interest in this topic? Sure. So I've been an occupational therapist for over a decade And when I was doing my theological training, I worked as an OT alongside doing school. And I always felt like it was this amazing kind of context that really informed the theological questions I was asking and the work I was doing in academia. And then what I was learning in academia also came to kind of influence some of the ways I practiced as an OT. Mm -hmm. But I met a patient one day who um, I saw about every six months. And I will say that um, this patient and her family have given consent for this story to be shared. um, And I'm also using pseudonyms to protect their privacy a bit. But I had a patient, an adolescent girl who we'll call Hallie. um, I ended up seeing her about every six months kind of at this multidisciplinary clinic um, at the at the health system I was working in. And the first time I ever met her, I came out to meet her and her mother in the waiting area. And her mother was like kind of sizing me up. She had never seen me before. And she was like, um, are you old enough to be an OT? How long have you worked here? Like, do you know what you're doing? And Absolutely, yeah, yeah. especially on behalf of your child. Your child. <laughs> and I was like, totally normal. I'll have a conversation with her. I was like, hey, you know, I only work here a few days a week. This is probably why you haven't seen me around the clinic before. I promise I've been practicing for many years. Um, and I actually, I study theology <laughs> on the side. And I, right now I'm thinking about, you know, folks with intellectual disabilities, which her daughter, Hallie, had an intellectual disability um, and practice, Christian practices, and particularly the practice of baptism. And she kind of just like got this shocked look in her eyes, and she proceeded to like pour out this story about how they had been searching for a church for years who would baptize her daughter, Hallie, and they had not found a church. Um, they are part of a Credo Baptist tradition, so a tradition that typically invites people to give, you know, a spoken testimony of faith um, or kind of get up in front of the congregation and talk about their belief in Jesus prior to baptism. But Hallie is non-speaking. 
So she doesn't communicate with words and she communicates in a lot of other ways. She has like a really vibrant personality, um, kind of this infectious joy and has a lot of um, other ways that she lets people know what she's enjoying and what she needs, but she does not, um, she would not be able to say, you know, I'm a disciple of Jesus or I believe in Jesus. And so as they went from church to church, they were never able to find kind of a pastor who would affirm Hallie's faith. Um, Some pastors were like, she's too disruptive. We don't even want her in the church, let alone baptizing her. Um, Another pastor said to them, like, I don't think it matters if she's baptized or not because she doesn't understand what's happening. So why would we even baptize her? And um, Hallie and her mom had eventually just kind of fallen away from the church, which I don't blame them for like this repeated kind of baptismal denial and their story obviously is really, I think tragic and striking and it kind of stuck with me. Like I couldn't get that story out of my mm-hmm. head. It's like this wound um, that was kind of ripped open and obviously a wound in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I, because I couldn't forget it and because I was doing this work um, more broadly on disability and Christian practice, I thought, is this a case for a lot of people with intellectual disabilities that they're facing baptismal denial or facing exclusion from church communities based on whether or not they can confess verbally their faith in Jesus. Um, and so that's kind of where it all started for me. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you find as you began to talk to others? Was that experience shared by a lot of other people or was there, um, were there kind of other stories uh, that differed quite a bit from that? Yeah, I mean, thankfully, there were a diversity of stories that I encountered. Um, And I ended up hanging out with a little over 30 folks um, across the state of North Carolina from all different kinds of Christian traditions. So not only traditions that ask for people to make a verbal confession or be of an age of accountability before they're baptized, but also traditions that baptize um, infants and small children And yeah, I talked to folks, primarily folks with intellectual disabilities um, and hung out with their families, but then also did work with uh, faith leaders in churches with folks with intellectual disabilities. And so many of these churches are doing amazing work that really honors the leadership, the gifts, the, what I would say, baptismal vocation, baptismal identity of folks with intellectual disabilities. And unlike in Hallie's situation, there are pastors and communities that said, yes, like you are a follower of Jesus. We are not who we are as the body of Jesus without you. And we welcome you through baptism and all these other ways. Um, And then there were also some other stories where people had challenges in terms of maybe the church that they had started going to as a young couple. um, And then they had a child with a disability, that church Um, wasn't willing to honor the dignity of their child or honor baptismal promises that were made or baptize them in general. So stories of people seeking new faith communities and finding 
beauty and belonging in new places, um, but also experiencing the exclusion and denial like Hallie did. Um, but thankfully, no one else besides kind of Hallie had these repeated experiences of that. So I would say I was actually surprised in the research that I did over the course of the year. There are many more stories of really rich belonging and mm-hmm. a really rich sense of baptism as a meaningful piece of the identity of Christians with intellectual disabilities, just as it would be um, in an identity for any Christian, whether they're disabled or non-disabled. And Mm -hmm. so I was glad to have a richer kind of picture of um, how churches are really um, practicing baptism in a way that honors disabled folks as well as non-disabled Christians. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to some of those stories in a bit too. I'm I'm curious before we go there if you could unpack a little bit about why why the practice of baptism um as a window into church's practices around ability versus say prayer or communion um was there a particular reason that baptism um was of interest to you? Mm, that's a great question. Baptism can be, I think, kind of a contentious thing for different communities who have different practices, but it's also Mm -hmm. one of these marks of Christian unity that Christians are the people who welcome folks into Jesus's body with this practice of of water and the triune name. And so I was curious about, you know, the shared practice across really, really different and diverse Christian traditions and what that means for affirming the discipleship and the belonging of disabled people um, and really calling churches and pastors and families and individuals to account for ways that we've excluded disabled people in our communities in the past and maybe trying to pave a new way forward and what better practice than the practice of initiation, of welcome, of membership. Um, Again, there's a lot of different ways about talking about baptism, but of welcome into Jesus's body. It just seemed super appropriate for thinking about historically people with disabilities being excluded from churches and what would it mean to take a fresh look at this ancient Christian tradition, ritual, sacrament of welcoming everyone into the body of Christ. Yeah. It's striking that churches can disagree about baptism because most churches baptize, right? <laughs> right? So one of the reasons you get to disagree about baptism is because um, it is so integral to the Christian faith and has been uh, since the beginning. So you write a bit about, about that in the way um that people resonate with the baptismal story of Jesus. Um, Can you share a bit about why that's so significant in this conversation? Yeah. So one of the things about the book and the research that I did for the book is that I was really focused on kind of amplifying the voices and perspectives and experiences of the disabled folks and the disabled and non-disabled clergy and the disabled and non-disabled support and family folks that I interviewed. And so because of that, I really wanted to kind of take their lead in terms of the themes around baptism and their experiences of 
baptismal practice that seemed most central to how they were making meaning of their identities as disciples, how they were participating in church communities. So I had ideas and hunches that I brought to the research. I can't come in as a totally um, exterior or just kind of like neutral person. I have my life experiences Mm -hmm. and everything I'm bringing. But one thing that really surprised me at the time, but now makes a lot of sense, is that there was such a strong focus on stories of Jesus's baptism in the Gospels. And especially for many of my disabled participants being named in their own baptisms, whether or not they remembered it or they had been baptized as a young child or an infant and they were practicing baptismal remembrance in their church or seeing other people baptized. But this identification that they were beloved children of God, just as Jesus is named by God the Father as God's beloved and Jesus's baptism in the Jordan River, that was so important to many, many, many research participants. It was just really striking. And what an amazing thing to affirm, especially for folks who find themselves often not called beloved, unfortunately, in the church, but also in just general community context, in schools, in facing discrimination in employment because of a disability, um, to be able to come back to this core practice of the Christian faith and say, you know what, what really matters is that I am a beloved one of God, just like Jesus was. I am baptized just as Jesus was. And this is a point in my life where I can point to um, and be certain of my belovedness. I think that's so beautiful. Yeah. And I want to, point out, I mean, you do something um, in our conversation that you do repeatedly throughout the book, um, and it's an intentional choice about how you've chosen uh, to approach this topic, which I think um, provides some good disruption for people who lead in ministry and who do theological research, which is to say that you are going to do theology and do this kind of reflection with people who have intellectual disabilities, not simply about them. Mm. Can you say a bit about what motivated that choice for you and what kind of gifts you think that offers? Sure. So I think all theology at baseline is done in partnership. Um, I think my theology would be really boring if I just sat at my desk all day and did it by myself. <laughs> but I think... And we don't want to be bored. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we're people who are gathered together in Jesus's name. And if we're not doing the gathering together part... Um, I'm a little bit skeptical (laughs) of what comes out of that. So I think like the form of the theology that I try and do lends itself to um, this gathering. Um, Stories are really important. Being a part of of faith communities, of lived communities of practice is really key for the kind of work I'm, I'm doing. And so it would be kind of silly for me to try and ignore um, the baptismal practices that I saw or the conversations that I had with people or the experiences and worshiping with other people. And then say, I'm going to go sit alone for six months now and write this book. Um, (laughs) so the kind of work I do is, is I think it just lends itself to, to this kind of partnership, um, and, and Christian community in some ways we can, I think, 
we should enter a space where we collaborate with one another and truly kind of live out this baptismal vision of the body of Jesus is indispensable without each person, even if we really don't like them, even if they have an identity that is challenging for us to um, understand or identify with, they are an indispensable part of Jesus' body of the church. And they have something to teach us about what it means to follow Jesus. Yeah. And disability theology, I think, creates this spaciousness for people's differences rather than saying we're all the same. In our unity in Christ, we're somehow all the same. Instead, there's this kind of gift in in difference. Absolutely. And I think disability theology too, many folks talk about, you know, disability is an unsurprising aspect of being a human being. Mm -hmm. So disability might be uh, more neutral than people typically think about it as. Like I said before, you know, I don't, see disability as a tragedy or like something that we need to erase or get rid of. Like disability is another way of being human, therefore another way of of being Christian and following Jesus. And um, I think really interesting things emerge when we pay attention to that and honor that. So I want to turn towards some of the practices that you identify. You identify three in particular that really demonstrate the gift of an inclusive baptismal theology, preparation, testimony, and reaffirmation. And I'm wondering if you can share share a story or two about the way in which people with this with intellectual disabilities have helped you better understand um, some of those uh, practices. Yeah, this is. I mean, there's so many stories. This is a great question. <laughs> Um, I will try and pare it down to just one or two. Um, I think baptismal testimony is one of these practices. Again, the um, research kind of bubbled up these three practices that were happening across the congregations that I was working with and worshiping with and spending time with. And I think the one that struck me most significantly at first and still has stuck with me is this idea around baptismal testimony and what that looks like for people with and without disabilities in Christian contexts. So this idea kind of started, it was happening at multiple churches um, that I was a part of. And I was having a conversation with a lay member of one of the churches And she was telling me how she had often been discouraged because she felt like the church really lifted up things that were kind of like basic accomplishments that people would complete in their life. Things like graduating from high school or getting a new job or getting married. And she wasn't, you know, saying that the church shouldn't pay attention to these things or shouldn't celebrate with people in their joy. But she really felt like often church communities and a previous, particularly a previous church community that she had been a part of had really focused on those things, like celebrated those things on Sunday mornings and throughout like newsletters or email bulletins or things like that. And she started to notice, Hey, what happens to people again, either non-disabled or disabled Christians 
who aren't having like these successes or these like markers of someone who may not get married or never graduate from high school or college. Exactly. Like how are we also celebrating their joys? And so we ended up talking about kind of these practices of baptismal testimony that would happen. Um, And I think when a lot of us think about baptismal testimony, we might think about, you know, someone going up before their congregation and sharing their story of coming to the faith or following Jesus. But in the work of this book, baptismal testimony certainly includes that. But I think it also is the marking in church communities of baptismal anniversaries or the marking by a community of someone's discipleship. You know, whether or not someone can speak their own testimony or write their own testimony, one of the amazing uh, practices that I saw, especially in a Baptist church, was to have kind of the community come together. So friends and family and other people in the church. And before someone was baptized, they would read or they would actually never read themselves, but have someone else read the story of their faith as it had impacted and influenced that community. So giving a testimony became not just um, a personal story about following Jesus, which again, like those stories and testimonies are so beautiful and needed. But in these faith communities, it became this communal act of people writing this testimony together and then someone else telling the church what this person's faith in Jesus looked like um, and really affirming their discipleship, which again is just an amazing practice for anyone. But when we're talking about disciples who are non-speaking, which includes some people with intellectual disabilities, there's also people who are non-speaking who don't have an intellectual disability. So I want to be careful to, to share that as well. But I mean, how amazing would it be to have our faith and our indispensability in Jesus's body as baptized members of Jesus's body, the church be affirmed, you know, every year on the anniversary of our baptism by having a small group of people at our church come around us and say, this is how I've seen the Holy spirit working in your life. This is how I've seen your faith at work in this community. This is why we need you. This is why you belong. Um, It kind of goes back to just a practice of proclaiming that belovedness by God that is affirmed in our baptisms and what a beautiful way for the community to hold that together. Um, yes. That would yes. be beautiful for anyone, whether or not they have a disability. I love that. Absolutely. Um, and I think, too, shifting to this practice of reaffirmation, um, one of the participants in my research was a younger man named Bob. Again, it's a pseudonym. It's his mm-hmm. fake name to just kind of protect privacy. But Bob um, is not speaking, has an intellectual disability, and struggled in church for many years, just basically getting comfortable. Um, he had been in this church, you know, been baptized in this church, I think when he was three or four, and went through, you know, a period of adolescence, as we all do, <laughs> with a little bit of turmoil. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, he would, you know, like throw chairs or just be like really uncomfortable in, in church setting. Uh, And this happened to be an Episcopal church. I didn't only 
interview other Episcopalians, but I did interview a few other Episcopalians. You didn't exclude them either. Yes. (laughs) All are welcome in the baptismal research. So Bob's family and priest and fellow church members noticed that in times when their church would celebrate the liturgy of baptismal remembrance or reaffirmation, that Bob would just be completely mesmerized by these liturgies and felt completely comfortable and completely at home. And this church community kind of out of their commitment to the notion that all disciples have a baptismal identity, all baptized Christians are gifted by the Holy Spirit with gifts for ministry, whether that ministry is lay or ordained. They kind of took another look and worked with Bob and his family, not to say, gosh, you're really disruptive. I think you need to leave the church or take a break or not be in Sunday service. But they took the opportunity to say, okay, what's going on? What is Bob trying to tell us with these discomforts and difficulties that he's been experiencing in light of the fact that we know that the Holy Spirit has gifted him with um, gifts for ministry? And folks ended up starting to notice that not only was Bob like really captivated by this baptismal remembrance liturgy, but also really captivated by the music ministry at the church. Um, So they started working with Bob and kind of carving out a role for him to assist with the choir, um, always having kind of a reserved spot for him next to the choir, which if we think about it, like honestly, everyone disabled or non-disabled like has their spot at church. (laughs) (laughs) Like I know I'm like, oh my gosh, there's not a spot in the back row. I might have to leave. (laughs) So I like feel this deeply. Um, that space and where we are in church matters for our participation and our comfort. Um, But people took the time kind of based on Bob's baptismal vocation and baptismal identity to start to try and notice these things and working together um, to support him. And um, ever since they kind of recognized that Bob just really wanted to be close to the music and, um, there were needs, honestly, that the choir had, that the director had. Um, Bob doesn't sing. He's a musical. He enjoys music, but he didn't kind of show any interest in like being a choir member. But now he he supports the choir um, with laying out music and kind of helping with the choreography of the choir, entering and exiting this particular sanctuary. And... Um, I think that is the fruit of, and and folks at this church would say that is the fruit of remembering Bob's baptism and remembering anyone's baptism is that what could have been a situation where they said, gosh, Bob's being disruptive. Um, gosh, this person doesn't really seem to fit in at our church, whether that's a person with or without a disability. They instead said, we together in liturgy are remembering that we have all been baptized and we have been drawn together in Jesus's body and in this particular church together. And we affirm that we want to honor the belovedness, the dignity of one another. And so that is going to drive our welcome of who Bob is and our coming around Bob and supporting of his vocation and discipleship. And so I think that's the way, one way 
uh, out of many that I've seen that practice be really powerful in shaping a community's imagination about ministry and about um, what it means for people with and without disabilities to actively take a part in the work of ministry, whether that's setting out music for the choir or celebrating the Eucharist. You know, there are many different parts of the body and many different shapes that ministry can take. Yeah, I feel like that story about Bob is such an encouragement to people in churches, um, to all of us to think about paying attention to each other's gifts. Yes. And what person brings into the space. And and sometimes it's really quite simple <laughs> to to foster a sense of belonging um and, and celebrate each other's gifts is is both an extravagant thing, but it's sometimes also a very simple thing. Yeah. Um that I think we can all we can all learn from each other um, what that looks like. And that's such a beautiful counter example to a story of someone who's, who's not allowed to participate or is asked to leave. Um, yeah. I love that story. Yeah, me too. And I, I mean, it's, it's still complicated, you know, it's still, it's hard to do that. <laughs> you know, it is simple um, and it is quite profound to honor one another's gifts and discern together in community what people's ministries look like. But that's also like slow work that doesn't just happen overnight. You know, we don't no, make a it checklist. Happen by either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't make a checklist and be like, boom, 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 we're going to assign everyone to a ministry and they'll be great. We'll do an Excel spreadsheet. It will be yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I honor, I honor that story and also am in amazement at like the church's commitment to doing that hard, long, slow work, especially sometimes you might, the community might discern what someone's ministry might look like. And then it might turn out that that's actually not the shape of their ministry. And so it's kind of like back to the drawing board, but I think communities who are rooted in this sense of um, just extravagant, extravagant confidence in what the Holy Spirit is doing and just an imagination that the Holy Spirit is up to something wonderful and probably beyond what we could expect or imagine for other people is um, just a beautiful outflowing of of some of these baptismal theologies that I saw, saw in action. Yeah. I think extravagant confidence is a great note to end on. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Thank you so much for talking with me today, Sarah. Thanks, Sherry. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Sherry Osting. Our editorial and production staff include Nathaniel Hood and Byron Walker. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and don't forget to leave us a review. Even better, share an episode with a friend. The Distillery is a production of Continuing Education at Princeton Theological Seminary. Until next time, thanks for listening.